This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond, the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. River City Segs is super excited about the holiday season here in December. We have buy one, get one free gift certificates that are good for a full year from the day you buy them. That's the best offer of the year. Uh, next time next time you'll be able to get that will you know, probably be December of 2014. So you know you can buy them online at rivercitysags.com. Uh, you can give us a call, 343-6105. Or just come on down to 1805 East Gray Street, check out our training area in the 18, uh, 1884 Firehouse, and uh, just come come by and say hello, and you know get you get you some buy one get one free gift certificates there. But always practice safe segs. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're having a great day. This, my name is Jeff Major. Um, this is a special birthday episode, uh, December 24th, 2013. Will be the 85th anniversary, um, birthday of opening of the Richmond Movie Palace, the Bird Theater. So we have uh, Todd Chavez, the general manager of the Bird here on the show, and we cover a huge number of topics from the 85 years of the oldest theater in the city. Um, you know, it's the oldest movie theater. You know, it's not the first movie theater, but it's the only one that's, that's still playing movies. And, you know, it opens in 1928. Uh, that's before Carytown is called Carytown. In fact, it's before Cary Street was called Cary Street. And, I mean, the, the bird is a Richmond institution, uh, if you've never been, you've got to go. Um, you know, it, there's a foundation to help support the bird to keep it open. Um, to keep the, you know, the regular features are a dollar ninety nine. That's that's a great price. And if you if you want to go support it, probably one of the, one of the best ways to support it is just to go. And they are doing some pretty amazing stuff. They have uh, the 24th and 25th. They'll be playing It's a Wonderful Life. On the 24th is going to be 7:15. That's their 85th birthday. December 24th, and the 25th will be uh, 7.15 and 9.30. And all three of those performances, you're going to have Bob playing the world's organ beforehand. If, you know, anytime during the, the Christmas season, fantastic to go watch, you know, Bob come out and, you know, play the Wurlitzer, um, you know, the, the Christmas carols with the, the words on the screen with a little ball bouncing along. Everybody in the theater sings along. It is a really, really festive and amazing time. And, um, you know, we talk about the organ actually in, on, on the show and it's way more elaborate than I ever, I, I don't know much about organs, but it's way more elaborate than I ever thought it was. Um, then they're also doing, um, something I know a lot of people are very excited about. They're going to be doing a preview screening of the season premiere of Downton Abbey on the big screen. Um, that's in conjunction with the community idea stations. Um, that's January 2nd at 7 p.m. and 9.30. Um, you know, I know folks were, I believe last year they did it and people would, were dressing in costume and the whole thing. Um, worth your time, I think. I, I, I'm actually thinking about going. Um, 
but the there is a ton of stuff we talk about. Um, you know, some of my favorite parts are actually the Wurlitzer, um, and and especially the natural spring in the basement, which. <laughs> I've heard tons about, um, you know, I've heard a lot of different uh, theories and stories of why there's a spring in the basement or if there is actually a spring in the basement. And we hash out a couple of these myths that go around, but it is it is there. He showed it to me. He took, gave me a tour. We went down and looked at it. Um, it's pretty strange. It's a, it's a pretty strange thing. I still don't fully understand, but it, it, I guess I understand. It's just, it's just intriguing. Um, but let me know what you think about the episode. Uh, History Replays today on Facebook, Tumblr, and on Twitter at History Replays. Uh, you know, let me know what you think, or you can comment right at historyreplaystoday.org, uh, or email me, Jeff Major at historyreplaystoday.org. That's J E F F M A J E R at historyreplaystoday.org. Um, and historyreplaystoday.org, you're going to find, you know, places you can. Uh, you know, support the podcast by donating sponsorships. You can also, um, you know, see some awesome pictures. Um, the, send us some old pictures of the bird, some current pictures of the bird. And, um, yeah. And now let's go ahead and get to this conversation that I had with, uh, Ty Chavez. And uh, we start out talking about where else, but when the bird opened. Theater opens in 1929. 28. 28. 1928. Okay, right. Because this December 20, this December 24th is our 85th birthday. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's a real it's a real milestone. Um, their original intention was to open it earlier in the year. They had some construction delays. They had some weather delays. Uh, and so it ended up being that December 24th, Christmas Eve, was the night that they opened it. Okay. And what is this area like in 1928? Well, um, it would have been, overall, it would have been more residential. It certainly was not exclusively residential. Well, first of all, a couple of things. Cary Street was a two-way street, and it wasn't Cary Street. It was West Hampton Avenue. Okay. Um, and the, um, there, you know, there certainly were businesses. The bird, there was, um, a couple of different businesses. At one time, there was a uh, there was a butcher shop that was like right directly next to the. I actually had that's funny. I had a woman, and I don't even remember where she saw the picture, but she said, "Well, I can't believe that all the way back. I don't remember when the picture was from. It was like from the nineteen forties, thirties, or forties, or something like that." She says, "I can't believe there was a porn shop next to the the bird," and I'm like. I don't believe it either. <laughs> and, and she was like, well, it's right there. And I look, and I look at the picture closely, and it's like, it says pork. P-O-R-K. <laughs> pork. That's it awesome. It was a butcher shop. That's fantastic. Um, so the, uh, but yeah, there would have been, but there were people living on this street. Sure, on sure, both sure. Sides. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, a sprinkle of businesses and so forth. Uh, and I have, it's interesting, I have pictures, you know, there's a very famous set of old houses over here, the ones they call the Twin Sisters, the mm -hmm. two identical houses uh, over here on Elwood. I mean, I have pictures of this property from like before, years before the bird was built, where there was just open space and those two houses and a couple of others. Wow. So they've been here for a really long time. Now, in 1928... Uh, the whole area had built up a lot more, and there was a mixture of residences and businesses. I mean, the fact that the apartment that I live in, the building that I live in directly across the street from the bird, 
uh, almost certainly was a residence right. uh, at the time that the bird uh, sure. opened. And now there are like two apartments upstairs, but there's businesses downstairs, and it's you know it's a much more different you know different use of the building than would have been originally. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say it was a much more mixed. Uh, residential area, but still lots of, you know, independent businesses and the sort of thing that you would expect in a neighborhood, um, you know, drugstore and so forth. We've, we've become more centralized in our thinking when it comes to movie theaters. Of course, now we're in the age of the multiplex and you think about, oh yeah, we're going to drive out to the theater and so forth. But at the time, you, you know... You would do one of two things when you went to the movies. You would either go to your neighborhood theater, mm -hmm. the theater that was like probably within walking distance of where you lived, or all these little theaters, the Bellevue, uh, and so forth, in in, in different you know neighborhoods, um, and and then there were the big presentation houses downtown. You had right. uh, you had the Capitol, the Colonial, the State. Mm -hmm. um, the Lowe's, which right. is now the Carpenter Theater at mm -hmm. Richmond Center Stage. Um, the Bird, I don't know, it's it's almost like it was on the edge. I mean, it was a big palace-style presentation house, but it also, I mean, it wasn't all the way downtown. It was, you know, sort of on the edge. So right. it was sort of a, it was sort of a mixture of, of both the, that big presentation sense and the, and the neighborhood theater. Um, and uh, there actually was a much smaller neighborhood theater just the other side of Colonial over here. It was uh, the uh, Carillon Theater. Was huh. there. Uh, and I don't know a lot about the Carillon. I do know that people that are still alive that remember going to the Bird when they were children, I've had several of them say, some of them have said that they remember going to the Carillon when they were dating, and I've also had others say that they remember you know, coming to the Bird when they were dating, but they also remember when they were children, they were allowed to go to the Bird on their own. They weren't supposed to go to the Carillon. So apparently it was a somewhat okay. seedier right. operation. And you see now perhaps I'm being unfair. I'm sure that there are some relatives of whoever owned the Carillon who will hunt you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. And so forth. But, uh, so, and and but you've also said, told where you live. You say you live across the street. So well, can, actually, no, that's, that's been replicated several times. Okay, and, so and so uh, no, I I I'm not interested in hiding. It's it's sort of a sick fact about me that the the our my apartment is exactly one digit different from the theater. Right, the 2908 West Cary. I'm at 2909. I like that. It's been rep it's been reprinted several times, so it's not like people won't won't don't know that. And when it was supposed to open, it was actually was I read this somewhere. It was supposed to be called the state. Yeah, well, actually, that goes that goes back some time. If you you can actually look at the original blueprints, and it says state on the sign on the building. They. Um, by the time they actually got around from the planning phase to the we're going to build it phase, there already was a state theater. Okay. Um, and actually, later in its life, the interesting thing is, is the state and the bird were sort of interrelated because they were both owned by Neighborhood Theaters Incorporated. So I actually have passes that say good for the bird or state theater. Oh, wow. Uh, but, uh, but at that time, there was no business in a relationship, but there already was a state theater, so they had to name the bird something else, and so it was named after uh, William Byrd II, right. uh, um, who a lot of the real estate that the original city of Richmond was built on belonged to him, and he is the one right. that gave Richmond its name. Sure. Because standing up on Church Hill, looking at the bend of the James River, he said it reminded him 
of Richmond on the Thames. Sure. And I've actually been to Richmond on the Thames, and it does. There's it's it's very some very similar. So it, I'll say my biggest complaint with that is that I've I've been there as well. The because I do uh, the Segway tours for um, River City Segs as oh, well. Okay. Um, so we take people there, and it looks the same because the picture the water is looks like the Caribbean. It's so blue. Right. And then look at the the James, and they're like, why is it? The Thames is not that blue. Yeah, the, the Thames is about the same. Color. Yeah, the Thames brown is about the same color. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, but in that picture, it looks like. Hold, I'm like, hold. No, look, look. Trust me. Trust, trust me. me. It's not. Yeah, it really isn't that that, that clean. But um, but yeah, and uh, and of course, I have people all the time that just who have roots. Of course, there's two bird family bird names in Richmond. There's the one that term that's the William Bird uh, line. There's also the one that. That, and I'm, obviously they're interrelated at some level, but right. the Admiral Perry bird. Uh, and I've had contingents from both halves come and say, well, I think my family used to have something to do with this theater. And it's like, yeah, really only the name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because we know the uh, Coulter and Sama families uh, built the bird okay. uh, originally. Um, the Coulters certainly took a lead once the theater had opened. Because in the person is Walter uh, uh, Walter Bird uh, Walter Coulter uh, would have been the the money man in the family, and Robert Coulter, his brother, was the general manager, the first general okay. manager of the bird. Was here from 1928 to 1971. Merciful heavens! Um, they literally could not get him out of the building, and it is in fact his ghost that supposedly still haunts the building. Uh, which doesn't seem unlikely, considering how inseparable he was. The Sama family, um, um, they sort of they sort of took the silent partner status. But we know that they were financially involved. As a matter of fact, we were just in the basement and looking at the chiller, which was installed in 1966. We know that they were still involved in 1966 because mm -hmm. the check that went to pay for that chiller was drawn on the Sama Trust. Oh, wow. So uh, we know... Uh, you know, a lot of the business records have been lost forever, but we know that we know that they had financial involvement, but they were still sort of the silent partners um, in the bird. Sure. For a long time, later on, the bird uh, became one of you know neighborhood theaters, and eventually they relinquished the building, and it was sold to a private family. Um, uh, it was sold to a family. the The family actually purchased it for. Uh, one of the business people that was involved in setting up the tobacco company restaurant. And the reason that he had them buy it was his original intention was to transform the bird into a restaurant slash club of some kind. Wow. And so when, when, became, when was that? This this would have been this would have been in like the early eighties, late seventies, okay. early eighties. Uh, I I don't I'm bad about yeah, I mean there there are all That's these all years right. exist in the book. I don't I don't have them the time period stuck, right. stuck in my head. But the um the yeah, but it would have been like late seventies or early eighties. Okay. The bird was only closed for seven months. Okay, really, the only time in its lifetime that it's been closed was was in that transitional period there. When it became clear that transforming the building into something else was not going to be as practical as they originally thought, they experimented first with um, with doing. Uh, sort of an art repertory house sort of thing, which didn't do very well at all, and then tried the discount movies, which was extremely successful, and that sort of carries us forward through 
the ages. Um, the Bird Theater Foundation got set up, and then the Bird Theater Foundation finally in 2007, uh, after having existed on paper for many years, finally entered into a purchase agreement to buy the building uh, from the from the estate of the family that had owned it. Oh, okay. Time period. And so, I guess, was it, uh, when it opened, was it, I mean, financially successful then? Absolutely. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay. It, was a, it was hugely successful. Um, the business model changed. The, the industry has changed. Also, right. But, uh, I mean, but, but, but it, it was absolutely, it was a, it was a very successful uh, place uh, with, you know, lines that would go around the block. And, um, you know, in its, in its day, it was, it was a very successful. And so, I mean, because nowadays, you know, <clears throat> we go to the movies most of the time in a big, like, cinder block box with, uh, you know, neon on the front of it. Well, I mean, that's but true. Was, the uh, I mean, was this out of was this out of character for you know I know the um, at least the Lowe's theater has that deco art deco style um, but I mean would have other theaters been, well, look, been this exquisite? I think it's very important that we look at the time period. Yeah, beginning of the Sound Age, nineteen twenty-seven. Right. Construction of the Bird Theater, nineteen twenty-eight. Beginning of the Great Depression with the stock market crash, nineteen twenty-nine. Right. So. It probably wasn't entirely out of character, but it was, they might not have even realized it at the time, it was sort of the last gasp of what was going to become a bygone age. Sure. There's a couple of factors determining that. One of them, of course, is, you know, um, you know, I mean, just monetarily, obviously, there was this huge fine. I mean, obviously, if the theater had been delayed to 1929, it probably wouldn't have been built at all. Right. It might have even gotten part of the way through construction and so forth. Um, as it was, because we came right on the brink of the sound age, one of the hallmarks of a, I, I've always felt of what the bird actually is and position holds in history is the fact that when the doors opened on day one, it had a state-of-the-art sound system, Vitaphone sound system, and the Wurlitzer Theater Organ for silent films, both in the building at the same time. Sure. That, that was pretty unusual. There were plenty of theaters between 27 and 28 which had added sound systems. Right. Uh, and and I have, I've tried to be very careful, and I've been misquoted many times as saying that the Bird Theater was the first theater to have sound enrichment. It absolutely was not. But we're pretty sure that it was the first theater in the state of Virginia to be open its doors on day one with a sound system. Right, to be built with a sound system. Yeah, to be built with a sound system okay. from the, from the get-go. Because you've got to realize that even in 1928, the traditional movie moguls thought that this sound thing might well be a fad. They sure. honestly thought people were going to get bored with it. They were going to go back to making silent movies. And as a matter of fact, the movie that was shown here on opening night, Waterfront, not to be confused with Elia Kazan's On the Waterfront, right. and Brando. Waterfront was actually shot as a silent movie. And then they went back and they added sound effects and music to parts of it. Not synchronized dialogue, but sound effects and music to sort of capitalize on the new right. sound fad. And so you were showing me that they were playing, basically playing records. Right. I mean, Now, Abner Long... When I was a union projectionist, and Abner Long was the oldest member of our local at, like, I think he was 81 or 82 at the time, and I was the youngest member. Um, and so I, how I long guess, have you, when did you start being a projectionist? Well, I, that was my first paying job when I was 16. Okay, fantastic. So You're about um, 21 now? 
You, you look. You, you look at. So. That's right. I got a painting somewhere getting old. For right. Me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just. I just turned forty-eight. So okay. I'm on. I'm. I'm. I'm well on my way to fifty. I got two more years, and I'm at that half-century mark. The. Uh, but Adner, when he was the oldest, and I was the youngest member of the Projections logo, I asked him one time about the. It's like so. How did you get the sound? to synchronize between the record and the film. I was expecting that it was, and, and truthfully, I'm sure that there was a starting point yeah. for both ones. In fact, I've researched it since then. There was a framing experiment. But I, I thought that maybe there was some sort of fine-tuning that you were allowed to, you know, to keep it synced up. And he sort of shrugged and said, well, if it looked right, you left it alone. And if it didn't, you sort of reached down with your toe and you tapped the <laughs> tone arm on the record until it seemed like it was in the right place. That's great. So it wasn't exactly high technology. But The Bird was actually one of the first uh, theaters to experiment with the this newfangled Western electric sound system, which we're pretty sure was in here probably within the first year or two that The Bird was open where they were actually going to put the soundtrack on the film itself. Clearly, that wasn't going to work. Uh, of course, that actually became the standard right, by, sure. which, by which movie soundtracks were done for years years and years after that. Sure. Um, but, yeah, the whole dynamic, we, we've sort of got a feel, but to get back, you were talking about, you know, would this have been a busy place? Would, I think it's important to place things within context not just of the time period, you know, relationship to the Great Depression, but also what movie theaters meant to people, the average person. This would have been the average family's, average person's only night out on the town. I mean, mm -hmm. this theater, you know, live theater was going to be out of their range. Um, it's the crowd that certainly would have gone to vaudeville, but vaudeville really was already dead at right. the point that the Bird Theater uh, was, was built. So... Um, but we've got to realize, for news, you had newspapers, and you certainly had the radio. But if you wanted to see moving images of things that happened sure. outside of your own life, you wanted to see men preparing for war, Olympic athletes preparing to compete against each other, the only place that you would see it would be in a movie theater. We didn't have... Television wasn't an issue. You know, wasn't part of the, the spectrum yet. And right. certainly we're, you know, not even thinking about things like the Internet... So this is where you saw not just your Hollywood entertainment, although that was certainly a big part of the picture, but travel logs, newsreels. These sure. were the places where people came to see the things that happened outside of the boundaries of their own lives. Um, and that's, you know, obviously that's not the case anymore. Sure. This is the reason it's like... This is the reason that we've sort of compartmentalized movies. Oh, yeah, you go down to the local multiplex and so forth. But in the time period that the Bird Theater was built, Marcus Lowe of the Lowe's Theater chain was famous for saying, we don't sell tickets to movies, we sell tickets to movie theaters. Yeah. What Marcus Lowe and the other people in the industry understood at the time was that you had to be a showman all the time, that the show began on the sidewalk, that the building was supposed to be something grand and exciting. It was something that was supposed to look old even when it was new. It was supposed to recall that um, that classic European theater aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and that was part of the design. And I think that's part of the reason that even in the... Now that there are so many other media options available to us that the, the bird has survived because... Um, I'd like to think that we've never forgotten how to be showman first and right. be the exhibitor second. 
um, that the way that you present a movie is every bit as important as having it at an affordable price and being able to show it reasonably close to uh, its first release. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. You know, people all the time are like, well, you could charge more for the Bird Theater. I mean, you're still so much less than the first run. I'm not competing with the first run theaters. I'm competing with Netflix. I'm competing right. with Xfinity On Demand. Mm -hmm. um, Redbox the, and the, the whole... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The first run theaters are so far off of my marketplace, they might as well not exist in my business model. Right. Um, and for the long-term restoration goals of the, the Bird Theater and the Bird Theater Foundation, I'd rather have 500 people through the door at $2 a head than 250 at $4 a head. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think the, you know, the organ, I mean, the whole thing is like, I mean, that's that, that show yeah. is, and it's, it's really, uh, I mean, you know, whenever I talk to someone who's, you know, just moved to the area, it's like, you know, what should we... Like you, you got especially around Christmas time. You have to go see the organ come up. The, you know the, I mean that uh, the trailer on the on the front of the movie. I mean everybody yeah. knows the words, the whole thing. It's uh, I mean it's it's Richmond, yeah. right? I mean it's not. And that's the thing. I, I think the thing the thing that's exciting. The thing that excites me about listening to people talk about the Bird Theater is that they don't talk about it in an abstract sense. They don't say, "Oh, this is this old theater that you need to go see." They talk about, I remember when I right. took my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. I mean, we're multi-generational now. We have people that are bringing their grandkids to the theater now that when they were dating, sure, they came to the Bird Theater and sat in the balcony. I mean, that that's the sort of, of integration with the community that has kept the Bird vital. Because in the end, um, I can talk... I can talk about all of the textural details inside. I can tell you about the plaster work um, and the, the family that did it and the, the sons of the sons that came and did some repair work years ago. Uh, and I can tell you about the paintings which were done in the studio in New York and brought in and attached to the walls and the Czechoslovakian crystal. But all of that is just stuff. To me, what's most exciting about the Bird Theater is the fact that it is doing today exactly what it was designed to do 85 years ago. Right. It's not a dusty relic in a museum case. It's not something you look at and go, oh, isn't that quaint? That's the way it used to be. We're still doing it. Right. We're still doing, it's like, and, and I said this the other night, we had a church group in here. Um, we have a church that meets regularly at the Bird now, and when I first signed that contract, I thought, ah, well, here's the first. You know, I bet there's never been a church that met at the Bird. I was wrong. In the 1940s, the congregation of Grace Baptist Church, their building burned to the ground. In the two years that it took to rebuild their building, they met here. Wow. I find that often. The bird's history often humbles me every time I think that we've done something for the first time. We haven't. I laugh about, I love one of the things when I'm doing tours or speaking to groups, I love to show them a picture. Of course, television was going to drive movie theaters out of business. Now inter the internet's going to drive movie theaters out of business, and yet somehow right. we still seem to survive. Um, but I think that's important. That's made that concept of showmanship even more important. Sure. We need to remember that we need to be more than just throwing the movie up there. But, um, you know, television, of course, was, was going to drive all movie theaters out of business. That was going to be the end. And I have a picture of people getting a chance to look at 
what would have been their very first television set that they ever saw, like in the 1950s and so forth, here at the Bird Theater. It was set up in the lobby. Right. And I, and I think that's I think that's emblematic. I feel like that the Bird Theater, something old, something new, on day one, it had the Wurlitzer Theater organ, the established hallmark uh, for the one-man orchestra for motion picture accompaniment, and it had a Vitaphone sound system, sure. too. Um, it was... You know, it, 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 I always felt like the bird has had one foot firmly in the past and one foot firmly in the future. Today, we still can run 35 millimeter uh, motion pictures. We just had the uh, Association of Moving Image Archivists who had their convention mm -hmm. in town, and they were delighted to be here in the Bird Theater and show 16 and 35 millimeter films and so forth. Um, and those projectors are sitting right side by side the Barco DP100 digital projector that we run digital cinema on today. I, I don't think that that's unrelated. It's like, you know, back in the day in the 1940s, a church met here when, uh, you know, they couldn't, they didn't have a building to meet yeah. in. We, now we have a church that doesn't have their own building that meets here. Um, fundraising, it's like we have a very active part in fundraising, but that's not new. I have pictures from the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s of fundraising events that happened here at the Bird Theater for local wow. things. Not even organizations. I have a clip from the newspaper from 1953. There was a family whose house burned yeah. down. And local contractors donated their time and their workers to put everything together they needed to pay for the materials. They had wow. a fundraiser here at the theater, and they raised all of the money to rebuild their house. A thousand dollars. Wow. A thousand dollars rebuilt a family's home. Yeah. Can you build a porch for that much exactly. now? I don't think so. And you couldn't and put in windows for yeah. that today. But but what's exciting to me is that's something that was done right here uh, at the Bird Theater. And I still feel like we have that direct connection to the community. And so would that have been, I mean, that it seems like that would have been huge during the Depression, right Right after the theater opens. I mean, are we... Well, movie theaters, we I'd like to say I'd like to say the Bird was unique, but actually movie theaters and entertainment venues actually did remarkably well during the Depression. Uh, people needed that escape. escape. Yeah, yeah. They needed an escape. And, um, and Hollywood was cranking out really low-budget product and so forth and filling that... That niche, but uh, the movie theaters did rather well during the depression, and the bird was no exception. The bird probably really didn't stumble for the first time until probably the early '60s. Okay, uh, and I would say it was probably look things were probably looking really bleak for it in like the probably the mid '70s. Okay, I mean I could talk, I could point to specific dates. I have photographs from 1971, the original vertical bird sign that was on the front of the building from opening day that you can see all the way up at Thompson Street. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to spend the money to restore it, so they removed it from the front of the building. Oh wow! 1971. So always think about, always think that that, you know, looking at the crane and them cutting the the sign loose from the front of the building and carting it away to rust away in a in a side boneyard, that was sort of emblematic of the decline in the 70s. And, like, was there something going on there, or just, I mean, like, bigger, I mean, I guess, is that that white flight, maybe, the, or the, the, dynamic, city, the, the well, city in general? The dynamic of the city had changed. The dynamic of movie going had changed. Okay. Had changed. I mean, we were already into the, I mean, you know, already, it's like if you were building new theaters, you probably weren't thinking about building a single-screen theater. You're 
going to build a twin. Right. And uh, horrible things that happened to places that were every bit as ornate as the bird. I, I worked in theaters in Pittsburgh that were beautiful ornate houses like that, where they built a wall that ran down the center of the building so that they could divide it into two theaters. Okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, it really was. It was just sort of like you always felt like you were leaning like sure. one way or the other in the building because there was all this ornate plaster and then there was this plain wall with a curtain on it. Right. Uh, uh, to the side. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the whole dynamic of the industry had changed. Okay. Uh, and, you know, the bird along with it. And, you know, one by one, the major houses were closing. Sure. You know, the, the national, the capital, the, the state, uh, the colonial. Uh, you know, you know, a lot of these, you know, you know, one by one, they trickled out of the theater. And we actually got to, there was, there was a time period, for a long time period, not too long ago until Bowtie Cinemas opened, when the West Hampton and the Bird Theater were the only two movie theaters still operating within the city limits. Wow. Okay. Um, and I guess was that uh, that racial dynamic would have made a big difference, right? I mean, you were telling me that they had plans for... Well, yeah. Well, ba- plans if, for... If you look at the original blueprints, um, and... and I, nowhere is this actually documented. I couldn't point to something and say this was their plan. But, sure. But based on the plans that there was, the rear section of the balcony was clearly originally supposed to be separated by a solid wall, and they had installed separate bathrooms uh, at these these exit stairwells that the, the fixtures for which were never actually installed. That would have been consistent with theaters that had like colored access in that second half of the balcony. And like I said. I'm not fooling myself into thinking that the fact that that didn't happen meant that the theater was magically desegregated in 1928. That means it was a white theater. You're talking about 1928, if you look at the advertisements in the newspaper, there's actually a separate advertising section for Negro or black theaters. Right. Um, and there were some larger houses that had like a rear balcony or separate balcony that was, you know, colored access only. Um, there never, there aren't any signs or pictures that I know of of the bird that says white only or anything that was more emblematic of deeper south, further sure. south than uh, than here. Um, and I certainly, unfortunately, can't point to any specific time on that change. But that that absolutely, I think that that the fact that that was part of the plan originally is very emblematic of that time period. Right. So I guess Tallheimer's and Miller and Rhodes, you know, downtown would have been 1961. So, I mean, I have no idea how that affected, you know, that's downtown. So, I mean, this is like so far away. I mean, right. you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'd be very, uh, I'd like to know. I'd like I to guarantee know you there are people here in Richmond who know. Yeah. Uh, and, but I'm not, I, 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 I unfortunately am not one of them. So. And, uh, and if you do, let contact me and we'll, uh, we'll have you on, on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so, and I guess, well, when does the uh, when does the area, you know, become what is Carytown now? I mean, when is that like? Because um, I've heard it was the Depression that started a lot of that, but I, I, I well, no, never I mean, really. Uh, well, I mean, Cary Court was actually way ahead of its time, and that was, I think, I'm fairly certain that was pre depression I, mean, I think that was 27. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, I think the areas, I think the area. Has probably undergone more than one renaissance, right? But I think there definitely was um, a time period in the late '60s and mid '70s where the area had sort of become run down. I mean, the um, uh, in uh, one of the 
one of the the assistant manager, Coulter's assistant manager for many many years, and he actually um, Robert St uh, I'm sorry George Stitzer, who he was he started here as a doorman uh, usher when the theater first opened and mm -hmm. basically worked here his entire life and he became he became Coulter's like second in command and after Coulter was no longer here became the general manager in his stead but he was killed um, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a look here so that I can get this right because I just I had just looked up all of this um, this is all this dead time that you can cut out yeah <laughs> The, yeah, it was 1982. Okay, so um, so yeah, 1982. Wait, so hold on. When did you say he started? He was. He, it was just. This was his first job. Yeah, I mean, and how how long did he work here? He worked here until he was he was killed. While he I mean, was he working. started in 1929. He started in 1928. 1928. Yeah, dear God, he was a child. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. So um, the uh, he uh, he was um, and he was killed. It was basically what we would call uh, carjacking now. Okay, uh, taking a deposit to the bank. Just just a couple of streets over here. But the thing that struck me is I when I looked the um, when I looked the articles up uh, in the paper about that, the cashier, the cashier here at the theater had been robbed at gunpoint in January of the same year that he was killed, and she said that that was the third time that that had happened during the seven years that she had worked here. Wow. Um, so um, in, you've got to realize. So in nineteen in nineteen eighty one eighty two. I mean, I think we were. I think, I think things probably hit rock bottom probably in the late seventies, early eighties, and were probably on their way back up. But this probably at that point was a lot rougher area Absolutely. than it is now. And I feel like so. I really feel like the Renaissance that we are that created the Cary Street that we know today probably came really in the mid to late eighties. Okay. Um, and that, um, um, and, but yeah, but George, I mean, he was killed, you know, right over, uh, you know, just a couple streets over. That's here. terrible. Uh, and, and, but that, but that, that, and the, the fact that I read that thing in the paper made me realize, wow, this probably really was that. I mean, yeah. if you can imagine that somebody actually walked up to the box office with a shotgun Sure. In January of 1982. Right. And I mean, yeah, cities in general didn't do so well in the 80s. I mean, no, it's a pretty no, terrible they didn't. Time for well, cities. I mean, I think that I think in the 80s they were all of a sudden they were all of a sudden um, realizing the shock of decentralization. Yeah. Everything was becoming more suburban. People were, you know, rather than the entire crux of people's lives, you know, it's just like. Sure, they lived in the suburbs, but they still they went to the movies downtown. They worked downtown. Right, not anymore. They, but not anymore. That was, yeah. and I think, yeah, that really the eighties are really when that began. And I, and I think that that probably that time period is probably the time period during which the Bird Theater probably came closest to ending its its days as a movie theater. Wow, and and was it at that time? Was it uh, when when does it stop running first run movies? Well, that would have been that would have been in the eighties. That would have been in the eighties when 
once it had changed hands, once they okay. decided that their immediate plan to turn it into a restaurant probably wasn't that practical, and they had experimented for a year or so with the art repertory model, which really wasn't making money, mm -hmm. and they decided, okay, well, let's try this second run thing that a lot of people were, and it was hugely successful, mm -hmm. uh, and continued to be uh, for many years. Um, the all those the 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 video you've got to realize that when the when second run movie theaters were at when that first really became a big part of the movie industry and when they were in their heyday um, the video market was coming out but I can remember when something came out on video and when I say came out on video I'm talking about a VHS tape sure um, if you were lucky a big big studio release might you might be able to count on it coming out on VHS a year or a year and a half after it had come out okay there was a huge window that window between the first release and now the DVD release right. keeps getting smaller and smaller right right all the time and who that squeezes out of the industry is us sure um, as a matter of fact if some of the studios um, you know, one in particular, whose name, you know, I won't mention, but whose initials are 20th Century Fox, uh, <laughs> would would love to eliminate it altogether. They think that they ought to, we'll just release things to, to movie theaters and video simultaneously. Right. Cut the pirates out of the market altogether. Sure. Because that's what they want to do. They want to cut piracy out of the market. Trouble is that cuts us out of the market too. Right. And 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 truthfully, that's not the same. I mean, there are places where second run theaters can run movies day and date with the video release, and it doesn't make any difference. Richmond isn't one of them. Right. 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 So that's something I find myself explaining to the people I deal with at the distributors all the time. They're like. Well, no, you can come out with it. It doesn't matter. It's like it does here. Yeah. I, and, and I understand that. There are areas, there are markets. New York is one of them. Mm -hmm. It's like they can run things to theaters for three weeks after they come out on DVD. Yeah. And, huh. and still do still do business with them. They probably could do it in California, too. Um, but, but, yeah, that was... Um, the Bird became uh, a, a second-run movie house. Really... At exactly the right time, right when that industry was just starting to peak. This is this is when first run movies were starting to look really expensive to the average consumer, sure. and the whole need for a lower priced, more affordable niche in the industry really was created and needed. That all of these, uh, you know, all of these entrepreneurs left on, and, and there were a couple of chains of second run theaters, but for the most part. The second-run theater business was an independence game. Yeah, it was uh, independent theaters, and a lot of them were places like the Bird, places that probably would have been boarded up and closed forever, except that somebody picked them up and sure and 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 carried them along. Right, um, and that's so because that's about the time when you got. I mean, you have it was only about a decade. Like so, you said you about sixteen years you've been here. Yeah, and so I mean, so I mean that's you came on as. Manager, I, I, or? Came, I came on. I well, no. I came. I came first here as a relief projectionist. I came here um, when they were still running man. They were still running manual changeover carbon arc, and um, and so I would have come not in the eighties, but in the, I guess I was been ninety 
what is that? I don't even remember. It's like 94, 90, something like that. Right. Um, I mean, the, the bird had already sort of established itself as a second-run operation at that point. Yeah. Um, and I came in because I had a friend who worked here as a relief projectionist, and he and his wife were getting ready to move out of state. Uh-huh. And he knew that I had the background with the equipment that they were using here, and they said, hey, would you be interested? And I distinctly recall saying to him at the time, well, sure, I mean, that's fine, but you realize this is something I'm going to do like six months or a year, tops, because I've got other things I'm going to do. Right. Um, so I came, because at that point, at that point I wasn't entirely certain I wanted to work at a movie theater again. I'd spent, I mean, that was my first job. I spent a lot of years working as a projectionist, first at, and, you know, for Fairlane Litchfield for many years, and then I worked as a union projectionist and worked a bunch of different houses here in town, and then I lived in Pittsburgh for a while and worked there. I came back to Richmond and I went into movie theater management with the United Artists Theater chain. And by the time I got out of United Artists, I wasn't really sure I wanted to go anywhere near a movie theater. Again, right. Because I'd sort of, I was sort of feeling burned out. But I came here and I enjoyed... You know, I enjoyed working as a relief projectionist, and then all of a sudden they needed additional management help and said, you know, would you maybe be interested in filling in a couple of nights as, you know, as a relief manager? And I said, sure. The transition from that to me as general manager is less than a year, and I'm really fuzzy on exactly how it happened because there wasn't any magical okay, now you're doing this. It's just all of a sudden one day it was like, wait a minute, I'm actually doing all of the stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that the previous, you know, general manager was doing. They just disappeared. Yeah, and you're just, like, wait, just, well, it yeah. Sort of, yeah, it just sort of happened. Huh. Uh, and the, uh, um, so I guess the, 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 it is, we went and looked at it. I've always been, like, really fascinated that, I guess everyone's there that spring, the, bottom, the underground right? spring. Right. The thing I always say about the underground spring, uh, people have heard about it, and I always tell people, if you have in your mind a romantic picture, a la Phantom of the Opera, of boats on a nice, clear, underground stream, by all means, hang on to that and stay away from the reality, because the reality is it's a little bit of standing water in a concrete room. Right. It is a genuine underground spring. We're pretty sure that it probably connects to the same aquifer that feeds the drinking water spring in Bird Park, but it's obviously going through a, a lot less groundwater filtration because it's very metallic. Okay. Here, I mean, you wouldn't. It's not pleasant to drink at all. It stays really cool right. year round, uh, and you know it fluctuates with the water table. When there's a whole lot of rain, it's higher and and then it's dry, it's, it's lower. It doesn't ever go completely away, and we do have to keep pumping it out or it would flood the, the basement. And so is that a decision that the theater's going to be built here because there's a spring, or were no. they building it and said, no, oh, I it's think, a spring? I, I, I don't have, again, I, and I try to be clear about things I know, things I suspect. It's important. Because, you know, the, the, my compatriots at, like, the Valentine and so forth say, you need to be clear about things that you can... It, it's very important. Things that you can prove. It's important. Things that you suspect and things that are just guesses. Yeah. What we... Our assumption is that they had no idea that there was a spring until they started digging, the ex- excavating for the foundation. Okay. And then they found it, and so they created a room and a pump system to accommodate it. Sure. Um, there is a persistent, won't-die rumor that that the spring water was used 
I, I, I've had people insist to me and, and have been upset with me when I've told them they're wrong. That, oh, before they had an air conditioning system, they used the spring, they used like a water spray system, uh, and that was the cooling. It's like, well, first of all, there was an air conditioning system from day one. Right. We know that for right. a fact. Uh, and second of all, they toyed with the idea of using the water from the spring to supply the water in the system, in the chiller system, but they never did it because it was so metallic and corrosive that right. it was counterproductive. But so, and it was the air condition. I mean, it's that cooled this building. Yeah, there was, I mean, there I mean, was. No, no, no. I mean, that's the rumor is that they used the spring for the cool the building, and that's not true. There was a a chilling system very similar to the one that the new one that they put in 1966 that was here from the beginning. It was so. Wait, what's the spring for then? I thought it did cool the building. No, no, absolutely no. not. No, no, no. The so spring, the spring is just, it's just an underground spring. It's a natural occurring phenomenon. It's just that, there. That just happens. Just to be there. no. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, see, I thought okay. Oh, see, see, you bought into the persistent myth. Yeah, you thought that that was what the spring. See? The spring was just there. It's just I, I can't tell you. The myths are sometimes almost more fun than the reality. Yeah, the, the things that people have convinced themselves, and sometimes you can even tell that what they've done is taken apart other pieces of history and sure. showing them to the bird. Right up the street here, uh, right up Cary Street, there uh, in the community over here, we've got H. Croft Hall, which Absolutely. was a London manor home, which was disassembled in England mm -hmm. and shipped to this country and reassembled. Absolutely. Sort of. It's sort of a pastiche. But right. I'll let them explain the eccentricities and, and, there. And I'm going to be happy. That, that's going to be coming downtown, up. The Mosque Theater, what people now call the landmark, uh, when it was originally built, it had a pool. Right. Underground. All right. So here, here, right. here the reality and the myth join at the Bird Theater. Because I've had people say, oh, no, there's a swimming pool under there. It's like, no, it's a spring. No, 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 it's a full swimming pool. It's like, yeah, that was the mosque. Uh, not, sure. not the Bird Theater. And then one day, we were standing on the sidewalk, and these two girls come by. Uh, two young ladies, I suppose I should say, uh, come by, and one says to the other, oh, this is the Bird Theater. It was originally in Germany, and they disassembled it and shipped it to the United States at the start of World War II to protect wow. it. That's excellent. <laughs> and, and it was all I could do not to lay down on the sidewalk and laugh. Sure. Did, just, did you ask her if they brought the pool? No, up? I didn't. They brought I, the pool as well? Exactly. It's like, did they bring the pool with them? <laughs> so That's fantastic. So, so that's great. I mean, so, how, what a weird thing. I'm actually more intrigued by it now yeah. that it's just a weird spring. No, it's just a spring. It's just an underground spring. I mean, you couldn't ignore the fact it was there. You couldn't just like... I mean, once you tapped into it, it's like the spring is going to be there. It's like if you just tried to build over it, the, you know, the water would be underneath your concrete. and it would. Water will always find a way. Sure. I mean, it's Absolutely. the universal solvent. So it'll find its way through anything. So they, they um, accommodate. We've had... We've had problems with it. I mean, when uh, Hurricane Isabel took out the power uh, in Cary Street for a week, the water got all the way up to the top of the steps of the boiler room, was on its way to the blower when we finally got a generator and pumped oh, in there to, to pump pump the water out. And um, we've also had, I have I've had at least one, knock wood, one breakthrough between the wall of that and the, the neighboring, the lowest point in the building, which is where the boiler room is, where the water spurted through the wall, but we had that patch. Right. So, um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, other than that it's fun to talk about from from a practical standpoint, it's a nuisance. It certainly right. doesn't serve any, any real purpose. That's strange. Um, yeah, and so there's also, it was apparently some sort of vacuum system. There was a there was a very early central vacuum system when we were down there. I, we passed it. That like, what does that even small. mean, central vacuum system? Like I read that like a few I mean, times. It means that when they were cleaning the carpets up here, they could. I mean, have you ever been in a house that has a central vacuum? Never even heard right. of a central vacuum. All right, a central vacuum is basically a really powerful stationary vacuum. So rather than carting it around the house on wheels, it's at a central location. And the outlets are piped to different places, and you can open them up and plug a hose in. And ah, okay. A vacuum. So fair enough. You can still see there are por- there are ports in the lobby for the vacuum system, and but the 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 vacuum pump itself hasn't worked for years. Huh. Okay. Um, there right. also was originally. That seems like if a lot you want of to work. get into ponds, you know, when the Bird Theater was built, there wasn't a concession stand. Okay. In 1928, that wasn't a given. Movie theater owners were not entirely convinced that letting people have food in their establishment was such a hot idea. Sure. Um, and down here, where our current concession stand is, there wasn't. There was actually a, a marble curb and a railing, very similar to the one around the mezzanine area, uh, and a pond. Huh. Now, as near as I can tell, based on photographic evidence, I would say that this pond spent a very small portion of its life actually filled with water. <laughs> I think that they got to the point where they realized that was more trouble than it was worth. Sure, there was sure. Rocks and ferns there a lot of the time, and they would use the area to set up standees and displays for upcoming movies. And of course, the nineteen nineteen thirty one, I think, is the first time. Well, we know for a fact that they the first thing that they did was they had vending machines for like candy bars and so forth. Yeah. And then the very earliest picture that we have of any sort of formal concession stand is a small one which is set up in front of that railing and that pond area to sell candy. And then 1931 is I believe the first photograph that we have of an installed concession stand which is where the pond originally was. Huh. Um, and is that the one that's down there, or no, that's, no? No, this is this is this was actually put in in the eighties. Okay, the one down there. The there were anywhere from there. There are three different iterations of that built-in concession stand that we have photographic proof that exists, and we have anecdotal evidence of at least two others. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. And to the. Um, how about the uh, the box office? Is that always? I mean, it's, box office has always been there. Been the box office. The Seems like that's got to be. That was. I mean, it was the way you built theaters. As a matter yeah. of fact, ours is probably more integrated in with the interior of the building than a lot of them. I mean, a lot of the early movie theater box offices, you know, it was just like there might be a connecting door, but they were more like exposed out in the open, and in some cases, it was like this separate little kiosk, mm-hmm. which is actually where the term box office comes from, right? Because like with touring shows and carnivals and so forth, the box office was literally this, you know, vertical box on wheels that you rolled out. And, sure. You know, you stuck somebody in to sell tickets. Right. Is there any kind of uh, movies that, I guess, just within, that made an impact here? I mean, is it's a weird thing. The one, ones that people remember that I... That I that's amazing, the, the, the longevity of, of the time period... Um, uh, people uh, people often talk about wings. 
okay. of the movie Wings, and uh-huh. I'm impressed because we a couple of a couple of uh, several screenings of Wings accompanied by the live organ performance were done here. Um, I even had one misguided. Wait, and that's like a the migration bird migration movie, or what is that? No, 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 no. This is about this is about uh, about fighter pilots. This is oh, okay. Yeah. All right. It was. So, a, it was actually. I, yeah, I don't, I don't I think know that. I'm, I think I'm correct in saying this. It was actually the very first Academy Award-winning Best Picture. Okay. Um, which would have been for the year 27, the year before the theater was built. Because I actually have had a couple. It's amazing. It's like you say. It, it, that, I, I always try to be careful about what so I this say. This is the 1920s. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because people say things that that get. You know, and, and it's like once you say something wrong, it's like you can't kill it. I yeah, can't yeah. tell you how many people have said to me, it's just like, well, wasn't the, the, the theater open? Wings was the first movie they showed. And I was like, no. It's like because Wings came out the whole year before <laughs> the right. Bird Theater opened. But um, but but things that I remember, pe- that, that I still hear people talk about seeing here and remembering, and they're usually things that we have shown more than once. Wings is one of them. Phantom of the Opera is another um, silent one that we've shown here, accompanied live by the organ. We just did it this October. Um, Gone with the Wind, people talk about, you know, wanting, that's one of those big, big screen spectacles that they may have, maybe have not gotten to see on the big screen uh, that they love. Going more contemporary, uh, we've certainly had a lot of film premieres that people have been very excited about. The John Adams miniseries we showed the first hour right. episode of here. We premiered here uh, at the theater. We did a special um, cast and crew, local, local cast and crew premiere for the film Lincoln. Uh-huh. Um, and for Cold Mountain and several other things that filmed, that, you know, significant portions of which were filmed here in the area. Right. We just did a wonderful screening for uh, Killing Kennedy uh, right before it aired on the National Geographic Channel. Sure. A lot of that was filmed right here Mm -hmm. in the area. Um, And people are already excited uh, for something we did for the first time last year. We did a special preview of the first hour of the first episode of Downton Abbey right. last year. Well, this I'm sorry, this year in January, and we're going to do that again this coming year, January second. We're going to do that. Fantastic! We're already excited about that. I mean, we filled up literally filled the theater, thirteen hundred awesome. seats. That's awesome for that screen. And that's oh, so it holds thirteen hundred. I actually I meant to ask that earlier. One thousand four hundred seventy two seats. We consider thirteen hundred to be our maximum safe capacity. Okay. And I would say for Downton Abbey there were about one thousand three hundred twenty five people here. Wow. And so is it? Uh, it was open that way. Or has it been enlarged or anything? Or well, anything? actually, if anything, the number of seats has gone down. I the I would say I think that even with all of the seats installed, um, the number was probably just south of fifteen hundred from the okay. Well, well, I mean, just south of sixteen hundred from the beginning. There have been seats. Part of the trouble is the part the the seats, which admittedly are the least comfortable ones in town. Um, Glad that you said that, and the, not me. The seats are well. No, that's I don't. I don't mind saying it. it's one of. The, and people are just sort of like, well, I always love it because people are like, why, why haven't you replaced the seats yet? The seats should have been first. And it's just like, well, you know, it's just like last year we needed to put the digital server in, so we because otherwise we might as well have just closed up this year. If you're not DC, if by the end of this year you're not digitally capable, you're not going to be in the movie business, right? Um, 
And also last year, it's just like, you know, we replaced the boiler. This is like, yeah, you have the most comfortable seats in the world. If you can see your breath sure. in the theater in the winter, people aren't good. going to come. Not good. Same thing this year with the air conditioning. It's just sort of like, yeah, it's easy to say the seats should be next, but... You know they're on they're on the they're on the priority list. They just aren't at the top, right? Because sure. I can still run a business with the seats that I have, right? Sure, <laughs> but you but you can't. You know there are other things that you can't do with that. But the parts, the seats that we have haven't been manufactured since 1938. Oh wow! So there aren't any parts available for them except here. So the number of seats in the building has changed because we've had to cannibalize seats for parts. Yeah. The first thing that we did was took all the seats out in the very front row in the center because nobody wanted to sit there anyway. And then we started taking the back rows out of the balcony. So we've probably removed the equivalent of probably three rows of seats over the years, cannibalizing them for parts to repair the others. Huh. Because there's this little hinge bracket and a pin and a spring and this long bracket that supports the seat. And it's made out of mall metal and it cracks. Yeah. You can't weld it. You can't glue it. All you can do is replace it. And there weren't any, re they stopped making replacement parts in 1938. Sure. May. 1938. <laughs> so, um, you know, so we have to we have to cannibalize the other seats for parts. Sure. Huh. Huh. And the uh, um, can anyone sit on the the side balconies? I know there's like one with a piano. They're not. They were. They've never been seating. They, they haven't. Okay. You is it just get, visual? You can't get to them without a ladder. They were never intended to be seating areas. Okay. So they're, they're just looks. They're, they were always decorative. The piano and the harp have been there from the beginning. You know, the piano is not just decorative. The piano is a functional part of the Wurlitzer Theater organ installation. The keyboard can be played from the console of the organ. It's got an action in it very similar to a, a player that? piano. It's a vacuum pump. That's fantastic. And the harp that you can see is just decorative. Uh, it's yeah. got a cracked soundboard. It's actually never been a playable instrument. But the marimba, the case that it's sitting on is actually a marimba or wood harp, which can be played from the console of the organ. It makes it sound as though the harp is being played. Huh. But those have never been seating areas ever. And was the, the was the harp broken when it was put up there? Yeah, it was put up there to be decorative. How about that? And the the organ itself. It's is an interesting story about. Well, I don't know how interesting it is, but <laughs> for, this is this is this is one of the things where you need to be careful what you say to people without checking the reality. Yeah, I had been told when I first came here, and it made sense that it was a Wurlitzer pedal harp, which okay. we knew it had been installed from the beginning, so that made sense. Wurlitzer made these pedal harps and so forth. There's this some woman in Denmark who, for whatever reason, has made it her life's work to track down and catalog all of the extant Wurlitzer pedal harps in the world. Okay. And so she wanted me to go up there and get a picture of the serial number and the soundboard from, from this one. So I got up there one day and I'm looking at it and I was like, this doesn't say Wurlitzer. It says Lion and Healy. At which point she lost interest. So, you know, she was out of the picture. And literally, like, you know, after all these years of telling people it was a Wurlitzer pedal harp, literally a week later, we had the jazz harpist, uh, Park Stickney, was in here to do a show with the American Youth Harp Ensemble. And they come in the door, and I said, this, I said, we've been telling people for years that this is a Wurlitzer, but we just found out, and he said, no, it's a Lion and Healy. Yeah, okay, where were you? Right, sure. <laughs> you know, years ago, so. Um, but it works with the organ. Well, the marimba 
which is in the casing underneath of it, Got the it. wood harp, plays from the organ, which makes it sound as though the harp sure. is playing. Imagination is a fabulous thing. I have had people swear to me, oh no, you can see the strings move. Yeah. Like, go, and, go imagination. How's the how's that organ doing? I mean, it's it's original. It is original, and it's uh, it has, um, the the organ has probably had more continual care over its entire lifetime than almost any other part of the building. Um, one of the reasons it's still playable is because there were always this whole generation of people who took care of it. There were the people who took care of it when the building was first opened and all during that time. And later, when as the organ became less and less important to the operation, but there were still all of these people, uh, you know, our head projectionist here now is one of them that mm -hmm. kept the organ functional during all that time period. There was a time period when the, the wiring at the console had deteriorated a whole lot and they went and redid it all with like a tele telephone um, uh, punch board switch wiring and so forth and, and, and redid a bunch of that and now that the foundation is in place we've actually had you know someone who was a um, a master organ craftsman who learned really didn't a full internship like in Germany oh wow um, and so the work that has been done uh, for the foundation has for the most part been very good, high-quality restoration work on things that, a lot of things that had been patched and repatched with bailing wire and spit right. for a good many of intermediate years. I mean, a lot of these things are like, there's like white leather and hide glue, things right. that deteriorate over time. And so a lot of that repair work, but part of the larger picture of the whole restoration of the building is going to be a full restoration of the organ, and that's sure. going to involve a complete I mean, the part the part that hasn't really been touched that much has been the console itself. The console needs a complete rebuild from top to bottom. And there's other aspects of the organ that do, too. But if you had to single out one thing right. that needs the most work right now, the console would be it. And so, I guess, that's what... That's the bit... The console is the bit that comes from the... The, the, the and part then, that people actually see. And you said it's about four rooms? Oh, well, yeah, the, the actual oh. playable part of the organ, all the instrumentation, the pipes, the xylophones, the drums, all these things that you hear, none of it's synthesized. All of it is actual acoustic instruments. And all of that equipment fills four entire rooms that run the entire width of the highest part of the building. You go up there, there's like a small workroom that's got the, the main blower in it that supplies the air for the whole system. There's the main or great chamber... And then there's the solo chamber, each of which are filled with pipes and all the things and have the swell shades at the front. And then at the far end, there's the switch room, which is the electronic re electric relay room. There's right. little magnetic switches and all of the wiring that comes up from the organ console down below comes through that switch room. You can see all of these connections that were hand-soldered by the Wurlitzer technicians when they installed the organ. And you see, you can see where they've written the connections on the wood with India ink That's as they amazing. went along and, and soldered all of them. And all of that is original. All of it is exactly the way it was when it was installed in 1928. The, um, the whole thing is an electro-pneumatic operation. 
when he depresses a key on the console, he is closing an electrical contact, which is activating a magnetic relay, which in turn is either opening a valve to allow air to flow through a pipe or into an actuator to beat a drum or a xylophone or something like that. Wow. See, I didn't actually realize it was that. Uh, that's really cool. I <laughs> like that. Um, and the foundation is, like you mentioned a few times, trying to put a lot of stuff, rebuild a lot Absolutely. of stuff. The foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit whose sole purpose is the restoration and preservation of the Bird Theater. Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of things that need to happen. First, the thing is, and this is the thing that most people don't understand, the, the building is not entirely paid for. It's, I mean, it's a, a uh, it's under a mortgage. Mm -hmm. uh, the mortgage needs the the rest, the remainder of the mortgage needs to be satisfied, and the overall they think it's going to take between five and six million dollars. It's important to understand how little. I mean, sure, I don't have it. I'm sure neither you, you don't either. Or we wouldn't mm -hmm. be sitting here talking. Right. To each other. <laughs> but that's a really small amount of money. Sure. Theaters like the bird that were let, left sitting unoccupied for two and three years, it would you'd spend 30 or $40 million making it a building just where you could let people in it again. Right. It's five or $6 million is a drop in the bucket in historical building restoration. Um, and, uh, you know, this would be, this, you know, retire the, the mortgage, retire the debt on the building to um, uh, to redo things like the plumbing and the wiring and so forth completely and bring them up to contemporary standards. Um, create, you know, redo the seating and in the process of redoing the seating, uh, which would be more consistent with contemporary standards, we're probably going to lose about 300 seats in the process, but the existing seats, the spacing between the rows, the spacing between the arms would be better. And they will more ably, as our President Emeritus of the Foundation, uh, Tony Pelling, put it in his delightful British way, better able to accommodate the greater American. <laughs> um, the, uh, create, they'll also involve the creation of ADA wheelchair areas in mm -hmm. the back of each of the sections, plus the creation of, of ADA bathrooms hmm. uh, as ancillary or existing. Redo the lobby, the carpet, the a lot of the, you know, there isn't, there are places where the plaster work was damaged before the roof was repaired that need to be repaired, but the large percentage of the plaster work and the painting needs to be cleaned more than it needs anything else. Right. Cleaned, restored where necessary, repaired where necessary. And basically just to give the whole building a, a facelift so that, and, and strengthen its, uh, strengthen its backbone so that it's ready to stand up for another 85 years. Sure. That's awesome. And the, uh, how does someone help out with that? How does that work? Um, there are plenty of opportunities to donate. If you go to our website at birdtheater.com, um, there are links there where you can donate directly or that will take you to the Foundation's website. Um, and, um, you know, you can make a donation here at the theater. You can donate online. You can download a form from our website and mail us a donation. Um, and the thing I need to say about this is that there is no such thing as a small donation. Sure, if you've got a million dollars you're not doing anything with, 
Right. We would love to have you, and we'll put your name on a plaque on something, and we'll talk about you for years to come sure. about what a great person you are. But if you've got $10, $20, um, and you want to see the Bird Theater or to remain the icon that has been in the Richmond community for another 85 years, we won't turn it down. It's all part of, it's part of, it's those donations like that and the matching donations that we were able to get right. from them, because that, that a lot of times that's what you get from these foundations and so forth. You get challenge grants. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, if you can raise $250,000, they'll give you $250,000 right. and so forth. That's how we put the new boiler in. That's mm -hmm. how we put the new roof on. That's how we put the digital server in. That's how these things happened. And that's how the rest of it's going to happen, too. Right. <laughs> Um, well, that's awesome. And I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's about it, right? Unless you okay. got something awesome and you got something, or do we skip something? I, I, don't, we, think, no, I don't think that we've skipped anything. I just think it's important for people to understand that what makes the Bird Theater worthy of preservation is, is that fact that I talked about earlier is, is it's not just the fact that it's this cool old place. It's the fact that it is doing today and the number of theaters that are of the vintage and opulence of the Bird Theater that are still existing in this country and are still operating as movie theaters is, I mean, there might be a dozen. There's probably fewer than right. that. And, and I'm, I, I work in the performing arts. I've performed. I've desi done design work for the I'm not against the performing arts. But a lot of these places, the only reason that they've survived, they've been turned into other places. What I think is exciting about the Bird Theater is it is still a movie theater and still providing still providing support for local nonprofits, still providing education opportunities for the community, still providing opportunities for independent filmmakers to show their work on the big screen, alongside of our day-to-day -day entertainment, which is not of any small value, too. Being able to present even current entertainment in an environment, a classic environment, has a value that's in and of itself. All of these things are part of the whole legacy of the Bird Theater and something which is part of the undercurrent, part of the texture, the artistic underbelly of our community that is always worth preserving and always value, uh, should always be of value and really... I think we all want to make sure is here for another 85 years. I agree with that. Holy smokes. And thank you very much for your time. Uh -huh. I appreciate it. That was it. Thank you very much, Todd. Hopefully everyone enjoyed that. I personally enjoyed it. And, you know, support the bird. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the Bird Foundation on my website, historyreplacetoday.org. And you can also, uh, you know, find pictures of the bird, some historic pictures there. Um, you know, best way to support, support the bird is go to the bird. Uh, and when you go, hopefully you can now look up at that uh, harp and the piano and, you know, think a little bit differently about them. And, you know, just imagining that spring. Maybe you didn't know it was down there. It, it is down there. It, that's the truth. Um, but, yeah, go ahead and support the podcast as well. Uh, you know, you can donate five, five, ten million dollars if you want. Um, but you can also... Um, you know, just support our sponsors, River City Segs, uh, and also just tell somebody, tell, you know, walk across the street, knock on your neighbor's door, tell them to subscribe to the podcast, tell them to tell their neighbors, you get the picture. Make it a great day.